0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts.
0: Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Are our descriptions of the world independent from our morality? And should philosophy aim to interpret the world, or to change it? On today's episode, we're discussing the relationship between morality and metaphysics, and whether putting morality first is a good idea when proposing theories. To help us debate the role of morality, we're joined remotely by cultural critic Raymond Tallis, novelist Joanna Kavenner, and philosopher Simon Blackburn
2: when you start trying to, as it were, uh, discover your morality through the lens of science or manipulate science through your moral stance, then sooner or later you're going to get bad science and actually bad morality. If you enjoyed today's
0: episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's discussion, Hilary Lawson.
3: Must we decide our morality uh, in advance of framing the theories that we have to understand the world? So Simon, we're going to kick off with you. It's all
4: yours. If we start with the everyday, um, we're all capable of making descriptions about the world which owe nothing to our moralities. Um, I'm sitting in a room, I've got a television in front of me, there's a carpet on the floor, a light over there, it's a sunny day, and so forth. Uh, my senses give me that, um, I, maybe there's an interpretation of my experience going on, in fact, the early old philosophers would say there is. But the interpretation doesn't, on the face of it, seem to owe anything to morality. Um, you can't tell from my description of my room whether I'm a, a great fan of Boris Johnson and a passionate defender of Dominic Cummings or, or whether I'm quite sensible. When we look at higher-level scientific theory, it's also very difficult to see morality getting into it. I mean, if you look at the great um, quantum theorists, Einstein was left-wing, pacifist, um, Heisenberg was not, and Niels Bohr was different again. Uh, They all had their moral and political differences, um, but they all agreed about science. So it's very difficult to see that the high-level theories of that kind, and those are the best we have. Um, owe anything very much to morality or politics. Well, of course, they owe something to politics. If, for instance, if the political situation gets bad enough, uh, the science stops being practiced as it had hitherto, and that was the case, of course, in Nazi Germany. So, um, so I think that the um, initial answer. And this is why I was a bit puzzled about the question. The initial answer I'm going to give is that the um, the ball is in the camp of those who think that morality does uh, inevitably infect affect our, our experience of the world. Joe.
1: Well, so um, as you said, Hillary, in your opening remarks, there's kind of a suggestion that where formerly we might have contemplated the world deeply and the world of universals and then worked out what to do, um, now there's a concern that many people don't hold a belief in a religious universal view, so how do we act? And do we then reverse the whole thing and we decide we're just going to act and stop with the contemplation? Um, and I wonder if it's all that neat, if it was ever a case that there was on one side absolutes that existed beyond language and on the other side um, these contingent mores. Because even if the super beings are present and you know we can't know for certain they're not, then do they use human language? Do they use our concepts? Um, and the concepts themselves are deeply rooted in Human lives in contingent realities, metaphysics, doesn't originally mean, as we understand it, something beyond the physical world. It comes, we think, and we don't know for certain, but some poor editor in the first century BC trying to deal with Aristotle's work. And he suggests um, some of the works might be filed as ta meta ta physica, the ones after the ones about nature. And from this, we have this wonderful change through history as language changes, and we now have a different sense. But equally, morality, again, if we try to cite it in the world, Cicero may have been the first person who coined it. Um, Again, he's trying to translate from the Greek, he's trying to go into, um, uh, trying to translate ethicos, um, and he reaches for a word, we don't know the origin of a Latin word, mos, um, which in its plural form means mores, the customs, And so we're within the contingent world all the time and language changes in time, it changes its meaning. Words aren't these stable absolutes and they're not gifts from um, a realm beyond language, that sounds very paradoxical. Um, So I think the question though you ask about foundation and how to act is really crucial though, um, because if you're going to act in a reality, you do need to have a kind of sense of certain questions that have a partial or contingent answer. What is the reality that I'm dealing with in some sense? You need to answer that. And who am I that must deal with this reality? Um, and again, to answer them, absolutely. You'd need to be eternal and omniscient. you need to be in all realities at all times. Um, so we can't do that. But there's a danger then we end up very discouraged. We end up like Bartleby, the Scrivener, who can't do anything. Um, Or we end up uh, like Merceau, l'étranger, who thinks because everything's meaningless, you can act without meaning, you may as well. And he kills a man for no meaning. So there's great peril and importance to this question. Um, And to offer one, I'm running out of time, but to offer one very, again, to use the word contingent, possible answer. Um, there's another novel by Camus which is highly relevant to today, uh, La Peste, The Plague, which he publishes in 1947. And in this, he gives his most interesting character, Rieux a possible answer to the question, the two questions really that I posed. Um, what is this reality? Well, it's a plague and people are suffering appallingly. And who am I? Well, Rieux is a doctor and he has a relative role, a very important role in that reality, to save lives, to reduce suffering. And he hasn't answered the vast questions of what is everything, but he can act, he can act in this tragedy. And in a sense, Camus is saying, because he has this role, he is in a sense a fortunate man. So, I mean, that I think we're in a certain amount of existential mayhem, whatever we do, because of these very strange and uncertain conditions of our existence. But I suspect we're trying for the least mayhem for ourselves and actually for others. Words create worlds and I think also change in relation to the world. And I'd say actually, though I don't have time to advance this, philosophy is a kind of art in this respect, borrowing a bit from Iris Murdoch, who borrowed a bit from Wittgenstein, um, because it does precisely that, it creates these worlds.
3: Thank you, uh, Joe, And uh, uh, Ray, do you, uh, do you want to put your point of view, please? I mean, as a non-professional
2: philosopher, I've often been disappointed by the lack of connection between the most interesting parts uh, of philosophy, metaphysics and ethics, how they don't connect uh, in in any obvious way, rather, as Simon said. Um, And this, of course, as again what Simon said, it's a contrast to religion, where an account of the fundamental nature of the universe is inextricably connected with the way we should behave, mediated through a god. But on the other hand, it's one of the glories of philosophy, that it's not in a hurry to be useful. Its curiosity is boundless, and the way it pursues its inquiries is not compromised by the desire to find a solution to the parochial problems of how human beings should get on with one another. And it's perhaps important to understand why this failure to connect ethics and, let's just say, metaphysics is not an accident. I mean, we have to remind ourselves what metaphysics covers. Its boundaries are fluffy, of course, but most philosophers would agree uh, that it deals with fundamental things, such as space and time, the stuff of the universe, such as mind and matter, causation, necessity, substance, attributes, and so on. And you don't have to have a clear idea of what these are to conclude that they have little or nothing to do with morality. We're not likely to get a clear ought from such a huge is. And the nearest metaphysical, (laughs) excuse me, (coughs) the nearest metaphysical question, uh, perhaps, uh, Connects with morality is the question of whether or not we have free will. That only relates to whether or not we can act fully voluntarily, but not how we we should act. Immanuel Kant did try to connect his metaphysics, or rather his critique of metaphysics, with a moral principle that we should so act as to treat people as ends in themselves, not merely as means to an end. But the connection remains unclear. And he felt that he'd identified the source of our free will. But I don't think he successfully identified what we should do with it. He obviously put forward some very famous general moral principles, but I'm not at all clear how they are connected with his critique of metaphysics. Perhaps Joanna or Simon can help me on this. And Plato sought to demonstrate the sovereignty of good from his ideas about universals. But again, it was not at all clear what good was, and certainly not at all clear that we would agree with him or what little we know about what his idea of good was. I began by mentioning my disappointment that metaphysics doesn't guide us as to how we should behave and equally that philosophical ethics does not or should not direct our metaphysical inquiry but this separation does have some advantages. Philosophers can agree disagree on things quite profoundly but I don't recall occasions when for example party and substance dualists burnt each other's villages uh, because of some kind of moral issue. So really I feel that these two aspects of philosophy are really quite separate, and perhaps that's probably a good thing, but I'm willing to have my mind changed during the course of this discussion.
3: Uh, So, thank you. Some very different uh, positions there, but it's a complex issue, and I'd like to begin to tease out the uh, issues between us by initially focusing on the exploring what is going on with our theories and our understanding of the world and whether they can indeed be independent of our values in the first place. We can then have a look at what we think about what's going on on the moral side of it in a moment. So on this issue of whether theories can be independent of the value system, I mean, Simon, a century ago in the 1920s, at the outset of the analytic uh, analytic project, Philosophers, many philosophers at any rate, argued for a strict distinction between facts and values, uh, so that you could just pursue facts independently of the values, and uh, they didn't didn't, uh, impinge on your ability to see the facts. But doesn't that look rather impossible
4: now, a hundred years later? Um, I'm not sure it looks uh, different from it looked then. Um, uh, Of course, we've got to be careful. Obviously, um, values in the widest sense, including say political values, um, determine where the money goes. And science has to go where the money goes. If nobody's prepared to fund a a science which uh, hopes to look into something or another, then the science can't get done because the scientists need an income and the laboratories need maintenance and so on and so on. So clearly, um, morals and politics impinge on the very possibility of doing science of any kind. But once you're in the laboratory, or once you're, you've got your telescope out, once you're looking at the rocks, if you're a geologist, one of my favorite sciences actually, um, your morality doesn't seem to enter in. It's not as if you think, um, oh golly, uh, uh, I, I can't really classify this as carboniferous limestone because you know, my priest tells me not to, or because, um, because it's um, it'll make my children unhappy or something. You've got to follow the observation, the tests, the theories, the best science. Otherwise, you're not behaving like a scientist. You're behaving in some way, you're parodying science, you're behaving um, as a politician or a moralist, whatever you're doing, you're not doing science. So I think so, the value distinction remains in place. Uh, in any reasonable sense. Okay, so uh, Joanna, there's a
3: strong defense of facts from from Simon there. Do you, do, do you think we can access uh, facts independently of our framework and so forth?
1: Well, I think the, the, so Simon's talked about scientific method, absolutely. You have um, a theory, then you create an experiment, and you have people doing the experiment who are humans with a subjective view, so I think it's incredibly important to um, consider that too. Who are the people who are contemplating the results? Um, I think it is highly relevant what era they're existing in, what preconceptions they're bringing. Also in physics, Ray mentioned physics, we have that great paradoxical revelation that the presence of an observer alters what's being observed. So there's a further um, philosophical question of once you observe the world, do you change it by the mere fact you're present? This is why Owen Barfield said you can't really talk meaningfully about um, sort of the prehistory, the kind of volcanic eruptions in the very early epochs of the earth, because there's no observer, what, what is this reality that you're imagining in human terms? So I think these are very crucial and this kind of craving, I understand absolutely this longing, the yearning for an objective realm, um, and yet it's kind of a realm that, that rep- Pels the human somehow. I mean Keats writes about this in Ode on a Grecian Urn, he talks about it's a kind of cold realm of silence, the point at which you remove all of this human quotidian beauty and chaos and indeterminacy and subjectivity. Essentially
2: the glory of science is that people got themselves and their immediate interests out of the way before they looked at the world. So for example there was no immediate benefit from proving a heliocentric versus a geocentric theory of the solar system. And if you think about the history of the mechanics that unfolded from that, uh, from the scientific revolution through um, Kepler, Galileo, Newton, all of these great massive achievements of science were quite independent of any immediate benefit. So people, as it were, did get themselves out of the way, they got their interests out of the way, and that is why in a sense science uh, was so successful, and in fact remains successful simply because subjective and immediate interests and moral concerns are pushed to one side. If you think about the journey from a heliocentric vision of the solar system through to GPS, and there's a good continuous intellectual line, it's a 600-year history. And that history wouldn't have unfolded in the way it did if people were on the lookout either for pleasing the gods, pleasing the others, or immediate returns.
1: Well, great. Can I, can I ask, would you, then, would you then say that the scientists can be influenced by morality? So, for example, the so-called scientific arguments um, at the time when Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness was banned um, on the basis there was a, a supposed scientific consensus that lesbianism was... Um, not only immoral, but also was detrimental to the health of those who engaged in it and um, would lead to, if if you allowed these works to be published, there'd be a sort of national health scandal. I mean, are you then saying that was just a bad scientist who couldn't take a a beyond, you know, the mores kind of view? Um, Or was that kind of intrinsic at the time to um, his view that he then brought to this science and then changed the conclusion that was accepted as a fact at the time?
2: I, I think there's a mixture there between um, bad science, science, as it were, led by some kind of moral stance, and um, reasonable science put to bad ends, you know, biological science. So I think that, I mean, that, that is, in a sense, I think it's a very good example, Joanna, of, of how when you start trying to, as it were, uh, discover your morality through the lens of science or manipulate science through your moral stance, and sooner or later, you're going to get bad science and actually bad morality.
3: Well, I, I was going to uh, just take on from what you were saying there, Jim, but put the question to Simon. Isn't there a, a, a more general issue here that in the context of, you know, Kuhn's notion of science as being based around paradigms, aren't those paradigms a function of the context in which the scientists are operating? And therefore, the values and framework of belief is affecting the, the facts, as it were, the facts of the, of the moment within our particular
4: paradigm. Um, I don't think that Kuhn, in, well, I mean, he's on record as not having intended a kind of relativism. Hmm. I don't think that he thought that the paradigms you know, came from your surrounding moral and political world. He thought that the paradigms came from the history of your science as best you interpret it and inherit it. Mm-hmm. So, you are locked into uh, what Ludwig Fleck, a Polish uh, historian of science working before Kuhn, had the termed the a denkstiel a think style um, <laughs> and Kuhn changed that into the notion of a paradigm um, but th- but, as I say, what that means is you you 're the inheritor and interpreter of a tradition in the science it doesn 't mean that you um, spring. Uh, spring into action, as it were, with a great deal of uh, moral and political baggage. It means you spring into action with a great deal of scientific baggage. And it's only the great scientists who manage to transcend that baggage and change the direction of their science.
1: But can so, I,
4: sorry.
1: Yes. I just wondered yes. about language, though, because, again, aren't we in this, as I, I was trying to make the point at the, in my opening remarks that we're in this language that changes and is in unstable and words have these echoes and associations and you have to express science in that language um, and that again this dream of objectivity it's not only science I mean in, in art and literature there's this dream um, you know that the novelist could transcend the world and see the world you know from this removed this objective remove, and you get people like Joyce writing that the artist, like the God of creation, would be um, above his hand, handiwork and pairing his fingernails. And you get D.H. Lawrence saying actually that it's only immoral, art's only ever immoral if the artist expresses bias, if he pr- expresses his predilections. But again, the pronoun you know, shows, and Simone de Beauvoir points it out, that in this, every, every man expresses the universal and every woman is the subcategory. And so that has a deeply invested and... A mores driven view that we might not stand by now um, and I, I, I just I, I mean I appreciate that of course there are amazing absolutely fascinating incredibly important tangible revelations of science that we of course use in the factual world but I, I just wonder whether we can get our scientists entirely out of their customs and society and into this as you mentioned transcendent realm And and indeed our artists, I'm not exempting the artists or philosophers or everybody else because we're all using language all the time. Mm -hmm.
4: Well, of course, we're using it, but a lot of science consists in changing the language. It consists Mm -hmm. in finding the language. Chemistry had to find the language of chemistry before it could get anywhere. Medicine had to find the language of uh, diseases, viruses, bacteria, and so on before it could get anywhere. Um, So it's not as if we just as a model along with whatever language we learn at our mother's knee. Um, Mathematics is a wonderful example where the uh, development of mathematics in the 19th century went hand-in-hand with the development of notions like a limit and the function, ways of expressing those, uh, ways of investigating the logic of those concepts. Um, And uh, as Frege said, you know, unless you've got the notation, you can't have the mathematics. But had to; they had to, you know, by struggle and trial and error and development, uh, arrive at the notation. Um, could I just go back to something you started by saying, Joanna, which though um, rather shocked me? Uh, you quoted somebody. You quoted somebody. I forget his name, who suggested that we couldn't talk about volcanic eruptions before, uh, for example, you know, a couple of million years ago when human beings began to develop language. Um, that just strikes me as absurd.
1: Oh, it's Owen Barfield, you know, he's the, he's the sort of least known inkling. He's the one who, um, he's a huge influence on Tolkien and all the other inklings. And he's, uh, he writes these wonderful accounts um, of, of the poetry of language and the way in which all terms in language are originally poetic. And what happens through time is that the poetry, the initial poetry, of language, um, you know, eaten out of house and home, those sorts of phrases, gets ossified into a term that appears to be indelible and adamantine. Um, and so he's very interested in that process of returning poetry or returning original meaning and ambiguity, as I was mentioning with metaphysics and these other associations. Um, but yes, he also has this notion of yeah. the, the kind of subject.
4: So, that's very fine and dandy, and I'm sure he's a clever man, but um, and the truth is, we've got the term volcano and the term eruption now. We know what they refer to and what they mean. And we can measure the extent of volcanic eruption in periods long before.
2: Okay, can, can I leap in on that and on some of the things that have been said already? But first of all, taking Simon's um, example of Thomas Kuhn and paradigm shift in science, and the example that struck him forcibly was the replacement replacement of Newtonian mechanics by relativity. Newtonian mechanics seemed absolutely untouchable, universal, etc, and then suddenly, because of certain anomalous observations, eventually it was replaced by um, Einsteinian uh, relativity. That was completely misunderstood, and as to his regret, uh, the, the assumption that somehow there was a, a fashion chain, but it wasn't. All that relativity did was actually generalize Newtonian mechanics beyond at uh, times in which uh, light had a, uh, a, a point where, when light had a, a, a finite velocity. And I think people have exaggerated enormously the role of fashion in science. But it's worthwhile pointing out there are some sciences where fashion is more important because science isn't a homogeneous whole. Clearly, physics uh, is rather different from social science. I was very interested in what, what, what uh, Joanna was saying about language. And it was Galileo who really set the tone for science in the 16th century, to say that the language in which, as it were, the language of nature is that of mathematics. And in many ways, uh, we can see that mathematics is a universal language. E equals MC squared is not actually part of any particular language. It isn't European, it isn't Indian, and so on and so forth. It is, uh, and uh, the mathematical language is a language uh, that really has no homeland in that sense. But this then connects with something that Joanna said, which is, the progress, the cognitive progress of humankind has resulted in progressive exsanguination of our discourse. In fact, the, no, the no notion uh, that nature can be understood entirely mathematically is an exsanguinated vision of nature. And finally coming back to Owen Barfield, I think his point was there is no phenomenal world prior to human consciousness. So you have to ask yourself, what would a universe be like if it wasn't being viewed? What would it be like What? what what would its presence be like if nothing was present to it? I think that was his in the exactly. Phenomenon. Yeah. It's, it's, and, a very, good, it's a very interesting question. Because it relates to our place in the universe. And we could talk about that as a whole separate um conversation. But there is a strange situation when we try and imagine ourselves as a universe in the absence of any sentient beings. Clearly it's not a phenomenal universe.
3: Um i wonder whether we've talked quite a bit here about the question of whether theories are independent of value and clearly if you think that theories can be independent of value then um you don't have to worry uh about uh, uh morality getting into your theory uh and your value system uh somehow inveigling its way into the into theory and you can think well no we should stick to the uh, approach that uh uh, you know, the Enlightenment implied, which was that we uh, uh, we can uh, pursue our metaphysical truth independently of our morality. But if, on the other hand, you don't think that, and you think that um, uh, our, our theories are value-laden, then you've obviously got a problem of what the relationship is between the morality and the theory. So maybe at that point, we could move on to the, the other side of the story about about the the moral side of how we determine our morality and whether indeed our, our metaphysics affects the morality or uh, w- whether it precedes the uh, morality. So, um, Ray, h- how do you think we decide our morality? How, we des- how do we decide our moral position? And is that dependent on our, on our overall account of things, our understanding of the world, or does it somehow precede that?
2: In the history of an individual, that's not the case. One doesn't arrive at a set of principles by cognition, as you will, incarnation uh, we, we absorb our morality from, obviously, our surroundings, family surroundings, beyond that. Um, and we arrive at some universal principles, such as do unto others, as others would do unto you, and so on and so forth. And they are not, it seems to me, and, and Joanna, I suspect we know more about this than I am, but it, they, these aren't the kind of things that are rooted in a world picture. They're much more rooted in the give and take of everyday life. Um, so, and I don't know that that's particularly dangerous either. Um, leads to perhaps an instability in moral codes and so on and so forth, but um, I, I'm not too sure that we would arrive at a better morality if we're able to root in it in some idea of the nature of the universe and indeed of our place in it. Clearly in religion there is this endeavor to fuse morality and cosmology. Um, and look where that's, you know, didn't go terribly well, did it? Um,
3: so, so, I'm not clear. Are, are you saying that we draw our morality as the result of our understanding of the world or that it's independent of our understanding of the world?
2: I, I think we grow into our morality as a result of encounters with others, what we're told to do and so on and so forth, uh, in, in a very sort of practical way. When we start brooding on a utilitarianism versus, you know, universalism versus, and so on. That's much later. And I'm not too sure how much that feeds back into the morality of um, nations and individuals in nations. It's difficult to know whether we begin with principles and look how they might be applied, principles rooted in some idea of the nature of the universe. That's highly unlikely. We tend to start our morality as very, very applied morality, part of the in- interaction between ourselves and our immediate human surroundings to begin
3: with. So Joanna, do do, do you think our our morality follows our understanding or leads our understanding?
1: Well, again, I suppose, I mean, I'd argue because we understand the world um, in language, then, you know, we're inducted into this system of this beautiful system of squeaks and murmurs and it's very ancient and very complex and it brings with it these echoes that resonate and kind of draw in memories of other worlds, other mores, in fact. So I think it's incredibly complex. I agree with what Ray is saying, that um, once inducted into this kind of overarching reality that is the language we talk to ourselves and others in, um, of course, we then interact further with society. And and again, I agree, I think, with Ray, that I don't think, um, there's a notion that somehow morality becomes very, fragile once you lose a sense of adamantine universals. And yet, equally, you could argue on the other side that if you have adamantine universals, you may commit, um, you know, acts of violence upon others justified by them. Um, Orwell talks about this notion of the ends justifying the means, this idea if you have an absolute end in mind, then you know, you may compel people to all sorts of imprisonment and oppression in order to achieve this end that is seen as an absolute good. But actually, really, we live in the means. Do we ever attain the absolutely perfected end? So, I mean, I, I, I think I'd say that because we're in this contingent, I guess I would return to the Camusian idea that you, the situation is equally um, baroque and mysterious for everybody. Um, and extraordinary acts are uh, made by people out of these astonishing forms of altruism for others. And, And that's rather extraordinary and beautiful. And that's something to be sort of clung to despite the existential peril that attends overall.
0: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
4: But uh,
3: do I get this right? It sounds if like both of you are arguing that our morality comes out of the contingency of our particular social circumstances. And that seems to mean that our morality necessarily follows from... Our understanding of the world in the broader sense, because that's a concept, a, 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 a um, function of the circumstance we have find ourselves in. So, you, both of you seem to have. Uh, do, do I take it that's right? Both of you think, well, no. It, m- morality follows uh, our, our framework of understanding here.
2: No, I mean, supposing you have a simple rule like "do unto others as you will be done to," and that's a sort of pretty universal golden rule. It's not culturally specific. That is hardly anything that would require, as it were, a metaphysical world picture to support it.
3: So you think that morality there precedes your, your framework? There's some innate morality which is outside of our, our understanding?
2: I think they grow separately.
3: Okay, so, you, so there is an independent moral framework, independent of uh, our, our, our cultural accident, as it were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how, how do we access that? And given the fact that there are as many different moral frameworks as there are sort of cultures on the earth, how, how would you account for that if there's this access to some independent morality? I, I,
2: I mean, th- this is an empirical assertion which I probably should not say, but it seems to be something like the golden rule, do unto others as you will be done unto. Is a pretty well a human universal. I don't know whether... Perhaps, Simon or Joanna can help me on that. So that really is, to me, the absolute foundation of morality. And clearly, it gets perverted in all sorts of ways.
3: Sure, surely, empirically, you know, there's plenty, plenty of evidence that, that there's lots of disagreement about morality around the world, and there are people who think they are doing profoundly moral things that you would be profoundly opposed to. And if they've got some sort of intuitive, innate moral sense, why do they come to a different conclusion than you do? Because it's mediated through different social norms. Okay. So, uh, Simon, do you want do you want to uh, come in? No, no, Henry, could
1: I just say that I, I don't think I I don't think I'd say that there's an independent elsewhere. I think I've been arguing throughout yeah. against that notion. But yeah. if there is, how do we know? And how do we access it without? because we are not objective and universal and eternal how do we access that even if it does exist so I'm afraid I'd continue to maintain that we're um inevitably I suspect within a contingent realm but then there are all sorts of because we don't have full understanding there are naturally these inexplicable um further kind of resonances across generations through language and also I'd say I just want to say briefly that the The claim, I think the claim for the independent realm can be quite pernicious at times. Um, Not always, of course, but, um, and you have notions, you have people like Schopenhauer who are dealing with universal precepts while um, arguing very specific kind of mores driven uh, views, for example, about women lacking reason and so on. So you, you have claims of universality that clearly aren't. And I think to constantly be skeptical about that tradition is probably quite a good thing.
4: Simon. Hmm. Ah, well, I agree with the last thing Joanna said. I thought it was absolutely right. You need to be skeptical about people who claim uh, a particular insight into moral absolutes. They're very, very dangerous. Um, Ah, what do I think? Look, we, we start by learning our language at our mother's knee. And we also learn how to behave, most of us. Some of us don't, but most of us learn how to behave at our mother's knee. Um, or our mother's knee and other low joints, as it put. Um, the, um, the process is one of socialization, it's often one of imitation, this is well understood. It's also, I think, dependent upon a certain innate um, emotional structure. And there's lots of evidence, for example, within the nursery, uh, children gravitate towards children, other children, or puppets even, when they're showing puppets, Uh, if one puppet behaves well to another, that becomes the preferred puppet. If um, one puppet just shows bashing another, that becomes one they avoid. So there are very natural roots of uh, imitation, emulation, and abhorrence and avoidance. And I think morality grows out of those. Now they can be perverted, of course they are perverted, they're perverted by uh, events which, and magnify emotions like fear, um, hatred, uh, dislike of others, um, the need to protect your own, which all of which can grow out of hand and lead to you know some of these terrible things we see all around. Um, I don't think there's any. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not nearly as uh, friendly as Joanna seems to be to the idea of existential angst. Um, it seems I am to, a
1: novelist. I mean, what, what else? It's my job. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I mean, there are people who see the world subspecie eternitatis. They see the, you know, the, the size of infinite space terrifies them, like it's terrified Pascal. Um, the, the deep geological time is terrifying. Uh, the sense that the world is one day going to end is terrifying. Other people, and I'm one of them, see the world in perspective. What's near to me is large and important. What's far away is not. The great Cambridge philosopher F.B. Ramsey said that he didn't see the world um, in, um, in, 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 a, in a sort of three-dimensional spatial perspective. He saw it in the human perspective. And so although the stars are very big, from where he stands, they're as small as threepenny bits. Unfortunately, can't translate into modern English. Um, So, um, I I agree with that. I think that Camus was actually, I mean, after making a bit of a meal of it, he eventually was absolutely right, that Rieu, in the the plague, has a job to do and gets on and does it. Um, He's a good doctor, as far as we know, and this situation called for a lot of doctoring. And that's the way you go. And that's where, I say, a mother finds meaning. She finds meaning in the smile of the baby. She doesn't worry about meaning disappearing because when she looks at the moon, it's not there. Um, it's the baby's needs, which occupy the forefront of the mind. It's other people's needs, which frequently occupy the forefront of our minds. Uh, I wonder whether, again, having explored the question
3: of the extent to which a theory can stand on its own and whether morality can stand on its own, we can return to the sort of bigger question that we started with in in mind. Um, So Marx famously said, uh, philosophers have only interpreted the world, the point is to change it. So can we return to this question of whether somehow the point should precede the understanding and would the world be a better place if um, we put the uh, uh, we, we put the point uh, of what we were up to first uh, rather than uh, it to imagine that we could uncover the, uh, our understanding independently of that? Do you want to kick off with us uh, on that jo
1: well so I think um, inevitably we're going to interpret. Um, even within the question actually it says before we decide how to change and a decision is a form of interpretation too. But I mean I think it, the, the fundamental precepts of what is this person who is acting in the world and what is the world are I don't see how you could play the game without inquiring as to the rules, that's, that's the sort of, otherwise you might easily be playing someone else's game um, and there might be all these hidden rules that you haven't considered. And as I said, of course, we can't know all the rules and all the all the games. But I, I think the idea of just giving up, you might end up, as we talk about with virtual reality, actually the, the sense that you're potentially you think you're playing one game, and actually you're being played in another. Um, you know that you're or on online. I that you're, you're, you, know, you think you're having a social chat and in fact you're having your data mind and there's a whole other reality going on. I think these things are present all the time in our immediate sphere. Um, and I think it's really interesting what Simon said as well about, and I really agree, you concern yourself with the immediate before you, but also there's a further question of when when the plague ends, what is reality still? What's the reality beyond? And who is he when he isn't a doctor? And those, I think, are really important questions. And as Borges said, we don't know if the universe is in a realist genre or a fantasy genre. And so everything we try to interpret and discern has that fundamental further paradox and question within it, I think. So, you know, I think you can't stop the interpretation. I think it's vital. I don't think we should all just give up and act kind of, for the sake of acting, to do something. I think it's going to be intrinsic, but it's a partial process inevitably because we're not eternal and universal and omniscient.
3: Uh, Ray?
2: I mean, it's interesting. I mean, as a medic for 40 years, I was terribly conscious that metaphysics and the kind of uh, concerns that certainly preoccupied me in my spare time had absolutely no resonance whatsoever with any of my colleagues or any of the 300,000 patients I saw during the course of my career, Perhaps 300,000 exaggeration. But in a sense, it wasn't because they were not living the examined life. They were examining their life through other lenses, and indeed life was often examining them, and they've stood up to the examination pretty well. So I've always found it difficult to relate something that I feel passionately interested in, which is metaphysics, which is looking at the world from a distance, trying to understand it, and so on. And where, where, how it plays out in every everyday life, and I, I the, the, the quote that I mean from Pascal, you know, the infinite silence, the eternal faces terrifies me. To which Paul Baver replied, "But the hubbub in the corner really reassures me." And in many ways, we're caught up in the hubbub in the in in, in 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 the corner. Whether or not we should try and relate the hubbub and the corner to the infinite faces, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I'm, I'm not too sure. It would it'd be wonderful. It would be nice to converge on one spot, and I'm. An infidel and will die an infidel but one thing i envy religious people is they can bring together the little hubbub in the corner and their cosmology you no know, they relate everything they have a like a vanishing point in a perspectival picture so when they're brushing a room it is for thy sake O oh lord and so on and so forth so i guess that's what religion brings but those of us who are as it were durable infidels are not able to bring those things together and when they try to bring them together there's trouble i mean I think Camus was very, very concerned about the consequences of having vast ideas for changing the future of humanity. Marxist ideas—that's why he fell out with Sartre, and so on. And you remember the bit in perhaps in, in, in L'Homme Révolté, the Rebel, when he talked about slave camps under the flag of freedom and philanthropy. And his fear was, if you had your morality driven by big ideas about the future of humanity, you might be very intolerant of those who don't share those ideas. And sooner or later, you're sweeping everybody up into a gulag. So I guess there's some completely disconnected random thoughts <laughs> that I, I have in relation to this disconnection between metaphysics and morality. So uh,
3: both uh, Joanna and Ray there, you, you have an interesting sort of uh, account of where we are, but I'm not sure, in either case, I'm quite sure where you are standing in relation to the question, would we be better off if we put our values and morality first before our theories or not?
2: I personally would be sure we wouldn't, because it would corrupt the process of theory making to have already to uh, predetermine the kind of outcome you'd want. And I mean, that's the greatness of science. Uh, it's also potentially the disaster that has come from science, but the greatness of science is yeah. okay the geocentric theory was perhaps influenced by religion but it was actually a post-religion but if you look at newton's laws of mechanics there's not a smidgen of, yeah. mor- of, of moral predetermination in those laws and gosh what have they done you know it's just amazing
1: and I, I think you, you get into a question of who is going to appoint themselves to do that, to say, well, we, don't, we haven't got time for any more interpretation. We've just got to sort of crack on. And, you know, this is what we're doing and this is the basis. I think whoever's going to put themselves in that role, I think, as Ray's saying, about the absolutes, we'd have to be quite worried about who they are. It's a bit like with censorship, you know, who's the person who's going to appoint themselves as, you know, the arbiter of what is morally um, permissible as, as a, a, you know, a form of speech. So I think that's a further question. I think you know, the interpretation of that role is itself very important.
4: Yeah. Simon? Yeah, I think the last philosopher, one of the first philosophers, to uh, expect there to be a, a tight connection between metaphysics and morality was Plato. Mm. Um, the Ascent from the Cave is a myth about how with the right kind of understanding you transcend the picture of the world which is available to ordinary people, and you see the sun, and then you're somehow in tune with goodness. Now, he's very vague on the details, to say the least. Um, And he's also very vague on the, well, he's actually slightly more definite uh, on the qualifications that you need to be somebody who ascends from the cave. You have to have a lot of mathematics for a start, Um, and you have to you know, have undergone the training of a guardian, which was a very rigorous and Spartan kind of training in Plato's Republic, Plato's ideal Republic. So, you know, the, the, um, the myth sort of peters out. It's also very unclear what happens when the person who's seen the good, who's got, presumably, a set of ideal values and certainty about them, uh, comes back down into the cave. Mm. Thirty should, but what the heck happens then? Is left again completely unclear. So I think that to the you know the exercises that try to show that metaphysics, a profound understanding of human life, causation, soul, you know, substance, all those things that Ray really talked about, that those are you know if we could only get those right, our morality would follow the line. I think that's just nonsense. I don't think there's a, a shred of evidence for, of a successful or even half-successful, tenth-successful, uh, working out of that uh, connection. But
3: the other way around. Do you, do you think that if we put our values and morality first, this
4: would lead to better theories, and uh, or would it result in chaos? I think I agree with Ray. It results in chaos. Look at, Star- look at biology under Stalin. Mm. Um, the yeah. politic- politicians tell the biologists what they have to find, and the biologists <laughs> went and pretended to find it. Complete stagnation. Science. Look, at,
1: look at art. Look at art under Stalin as well. That's right, yes. the sort of Stalin moralistic novel, you know, that, that you lose any sense of an interesting tradition in literature. And yeah. uh, you're all supposed social realists, even though actually you're peddling propagandist fantasies.
4: And, of course, the, the history of the church interfering with science is very, very poor. The church, uh, um, and I know that the... Um, Sort of, uh, uh, um, naive story about the Roman Catholic Church and Galileo is naive. It's a very complicated picture because there's some very good astrologers in the, uh, astronomers in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but the church opposed um, medical advances, it opposed anesthetics, it opposed Darwin. Um, and um, as we stand, it opposes assisted dying. Mm. So I think that the the attempt to make morality, or religious morality, morality in the mouths of its self-appointed guardians, some kind of, um, uh, put put, put it in some kind of leading position vis-a-vis science, would be absolutely catastrophic.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place
4: to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from.